There are many people, many examples, models that we can follow to look at, to, to learn and grow in a number of different ways. I used to, especially at school, used to really be into writing a lot. I spent a lot of time trying to grow as a writer, learn how to write better. And I learned in researching the history of writing, especially before 1930, nearly every great writer had become great by studying, looking at, and imitating the great writers that had, become before, had come before them. I can give some examples of that. Anybody here ever heard of Jack London? Some of you? Well, Jack London's one of the uh, great American writers, and he was able to write classics like White Fang because he copied the works of Rudyard, Ki Rudyard Kipling by hand, who's the author of The Jungle Book. Hunter S. Thompson copied the great Gatsby as he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Even today, there's a man named John Morrow. He was so fascinated by the works of Stephen King that he went out and he bought Stephen King's book called On Writing. He went home, copied the entire book by hand. Today, in terms of followers and viral posts, he's the most successful blogger in the entire world. He gives all of the credit to imitating Stephen King. Authors today understand that imitating is key to growing as a writer, and they've written much about it. Roy Peter Clark, uh, he wrote a book called X-Ray Reading, and it's about teaching people how to look at a text and learn what's happening in the text that makes it work, that makes it so fascinating, and to use that in your own writing. Steven Pinker, two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize, refers to this as reverse engineering, finding a great piece of writing, or the writing of someone you admire, and then studying it, copying it, to find out why that writing is so great. And whenever I worked at the Writing Center at Southern Seminary, I would teach workshops about this all the way up to the PhD level to help them improve their writing. And I'd tell them to find one, two, or 10 writers that you admire and imitate their work. That used to be the standard method for teaching students to write before the 1930s. And we see imitation and things like this all over the place. Uh, think about basketball, for instance. Kobe Bryant used to study the videos of basketball legends. He'd study Jerry West, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan. He'd watch their videos, and then he would go to the court and he would imitate their moves. In art, famous artists that we know today used to study the shapes, 
the curves, the things that artists before them used to do. Michelangelo copied Roman sculptures, sculptors. Picasso copied the works of others before him. They were able to use imitation to not only be successful, but the people I've been mentioning and using as examples are some of the greatest people in their particular field. Why does that work? I think it's because we aren't hardwired to simply hear a bunch of abstract rules and principles and then just know how to put them into practice. For instance, in writing, we can hear principles like vary your sentence structure, vary your sentence length to keep what you're saying interesting. Write a long sentence and follow it with a short sentence. Snap your reader's attention back. Use clicks to end paragraphs. Argue inductively. You know, we can teach people those things, but they're not going to understand how to actually do it well until they see someone who perfected it. And I think the writers of Scripture knew this long, long ago. They understood that, yes, teach us commands and rules to follow, but do that alongside of us looking at people to imitate. We're told many times in Scripture to imitate Jesus. Paul says in Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians to imitate me. Hebrews chapter 11 is all about looking to the heroes of the faith that came before us and imitate their faith. Hebrews also says to imitate the faith of elders. So the New Testament writers understood that they shouldn't just give people a bunch of rules to follow, but they knew that they needed someone to look at who embodied those rules to learn how to do it, to learn what it looks like. One way I think we can grow in our understanding of evangelism is to imitate Paul in the way that he shared the gospel in our text today. And I know we've had lots of sermons on evangelism. You can't escape it in Acts. It's all over the place. I want to answer these questions this morning. When we are faithful sharing the gospel, should we see the same consistent results? If we are faithful, should we expect everyone to be converted? If we are faithful, should we expect everyone to reject us? Or something in between that? Last week, we left off with Paul and Barnabas on the island of Cyprus. Specifically, we left off with them being on the most western part of the island in an area called 
Paphos. And there we saw that Paul confronted a sorcerer trying to lead a Roman official away from the gospel. And we also saw that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, caused the sorcerer to go blind, and the proconsul, seeing everything that happened and hearing the gospel, believed the gospel and was saved. And what did we say was at the root of all this? We said that at the root of what we saw in our text was two kingdoms clashing. The kingdom of God fighting and overcoming the kingdom of Satan. In our text today, Paul and Barnabas, they, they are leaving the island of Cyprus, and they make a short stop in Perga to ultimately end up in Pisidian Antioch, verses 13 and 14. John, he leaves them along the way. Where is Pisidian Antioch? This might be confusing if you've actually been following along really closely because you'd remember a few weeks back we talked about Paul and Barnabas helping to build up a church in a place called Antioch. And then just last week we saw that they left a place called Antioch to come to Cyprus. So is Paul and Barnabas, are they back in the same location that they originally left? No. The Antioch that they left to go to Cyprus was east of Cyprus. The Antioch that they're in now in our text is northwest of Cyprus. If you uh, have time, go home, look at a map, an atlas. You can see that for yourself. And this Antioch is located in the province of Galatia. So Paul and Barnabas, they're in Pisidian Antioch. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that on the Sabbath day, they went into a Jewish synagogue. Now, often in the first century, it was custom for leaders in the synagogue to allow visitors or guests to come up and speak. Maybe we should do that today. <laughs> bad idea. Paul and Barnabas might have been dressed as rabbis or teachers as well. There may have been something that marked them out as, as being a teacher. Because what we see in verse 15 is that the leaders in the synagogue, in a place that Paul and Barnabas haven't been, they invite Paul and Barnabas to come up and speak in the synagogue. Look at verse 15. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, before moving on, I want to point out something that's important here. Paul and Barnabas are in a synagogue that they understand is going to pass away. The synagogue is no longer the place that a Christian is going to learn about their faith. In fact, now that Paul has his Old Testament understanding corrected by seeing Jesus as the Messiah, the synagogue is now the place where the law is most likely taught incorrectly. And it is a place 
that is teaching incorrect doctrine about the Messiah. Most likely, some people did teach correct teaching, though they didn't see Jesus. And I point that out because Paul and Barnabas, though they know the synagogue isn't necessary anymore, though they don't believe anymore that uh, the Jewish teachings on the law and the Messiah, they're not afraid of being mistakenly identified as belonging to these Jews because of the opportunity it gives them to share the gospel. They're not afraid to be in a Jewish synagogue, not afraid to be listening to false or at least incomplete teaching because of the opportunity it gives them to share the gospel. And so verse 16 tells us that Paul took them up on their offer to speak. He stands up, and in verse 16 to 22, he begins to retell the story of Israel. He talks about the selection of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their role in Israel's history. He moves on to talk about how God multiplied the people of Israel in Egypt and then how God saved them from slavery from Egypt in verse 17. In verse 18, he talks about the 40 years they stayed in the wilderness. He talks about the possession of the land and the period of the judges in verse 19. Paul mentions how after the judges, the people wanted a king like the other nations, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, verse 21. Which, by the way, he mentions Saul as being from the tribe of Benjamin because the true king of Israel was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, meaning Saul wasn't the true king. And so contrast Saul with David, who is from the tribe of Judah, which is what Paul does in verse 22. And that's the right king, the man after God's own heart. And so why does he retell the story of Israel ending with David? Why does he stop there? Why does he trace Israel's history and stop at David? There's a couple reasons. And we'll get to those. But first, I want to ask, why does he even retell the story of Israel to begin with? Why does he go through Scripture that, in such a way? If you guys remember a few months back, we saw this with Stephen as well, when he was retelling the story of Israel, tracing the theme of the temple and God's presence. The Jewish people would do this. This is how they understood the Old Testament scriptures. This is how they saw it. The people of Israel understood their history and saw the Old Testament as a chronological story. The Jews, and here in our text, Paul and Barnabas, understood that to convince other Jews of a belief in scripture... 
You couldn't just give somebody a proof text or two. That is so easy to refute, to say something and say, this verse says this. I mean, that's so easy to refute. Biblical worldviews are constructed on something much greater than a couple of verses to back it up. If you want to convince someone of your position, you had to demonstrate that your position makes sense with the entire story. You had to uproot the false narrative that people construct their worldview on and replace it with a strong and robust understanding of Scripture that fits the biblical narrative. And so that's what Paul's doing here in our text. But he's also doing something else by retelling Israel's story. He's trying to establish some common ground with them. He's trying to identify with them in some way in hopes that they'll be more receptive to the gospel he's about to present. And that's the point I want us to take away from this first section. When we evangelize, don't be afraid to establish trust by finding common ground or even identifying in some way with the people you're talking to. When I was in Louisville, uh, I often used to hang out at a lot of coffee shops to do my work. And, and by the way, with the exception of Manhattan, I've never been to a, a city that's had so many options of, of coffee and coffee shops. Amazing place. And one day while I'm sitting at Heine Brothers Coffee Shop, there's a man sitting on a couch across from me. His name is Mina. So we're sitting there looking at each other and I finally introduced myself to him and we began talking and asking him about his, I asked him about himself and he told me he's from Egypt and we were talking for a while and I finally tried to start steering the conversation towards religion because there's a lot of Muslims in Egypt. I assumingly asked, are you Muslim? As I was talking to him, he said no, and to my surprise, he said he was a Christian. But I dug a little bit further, and I found out that he was actually a Coptic Christian, and that he belonged to the Eastern Orthodox Church. And after investigating even further, I had some serious concerns about his faith. For one, he told me that he believed communion, which we're going to take today, made him more righteous and so more acceptable to God. I simply responded by telling him what I believed. And we were discussing these things for a while, and so finally I just asked him, would you like to come check out our church sometime? Would you want to come to our church he agreed, but he had a condition. He said that I have to check his church out. 
And so what should I do in that situation? Should I go to an Eastern Orthodox church? Well, like Paul, who wasn't afraid to go into a Jewish synagogue to have an opportunity to share the gospel, I wasn't afraid of attending an Eastern Orthodox church to not only share the gospel, but to get him to see what a Protestant evangelical church is like. So, not going to take communion when I go there, but agreed to visit. I will say up front, he had no chance of persuading me of his beliefs, but I decided to go. If I fast-track the story a little bit, he ended up coming to my church, but after he came, he didn't actually invite me to his church. He didn't show up again. He stopped texting me, so that's how it ended. But the point I want to reiterate is this. I was willing to be mistaken in some way as being interested in Eastern Orthodoxy so that I could have an opportunity to share the gospel with him. I could give so many examples of this. Uh, when I worked with Syrian refugees in Louisville, uh, I'd often observe, observe cultural things in their homes so that I wouldn't offend them. I would teach many of them English. And I would do this and follow their customs, take your shoes off at the door, other things that they did. And I would do this just to have an opportunity to eventually share the gospel with them, trying to build relationships. My school at Southern, they'd often take day trips. Professors would take students to a mosque. Sometimes the differences between Christians and Muslims, they're so extreme that the only way we'll ever encounter them is if we actively seek them. And often that means going to their turf and observing not, not religious ordinance or rituals. We don't pray to Allah, but we can observe Middle Eastern cultural practices like the missionary wearing the, uh, I forget what it's called, the, the thing he was wearing a couple weeks ago. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I have become all things to all people that by, by all means I might save some of them. And what did he say? He said, to those who are under the law, I became as one under the law. And Paul, not wanting to offend the Jews in Acts 16, actually went as far as even having Timothy to be circumcised. He knew circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation, but he had Timothy do it to reach the Jewish people. He understood that even though some people would probably look at Paul's actions and mistake what he's doing, he knew that God understood his purposes for circumcising Timothy, which was to share the gospel. And so we shouldn't be afraid to find ways to establish trust with people for the advancement 
of the gospel. I don't know what your view is on celebrating Halloween or not. Margie and I, until we moved here and our driveway became a mile long, we used to uh, pass out candy every year. Now nobody comes to our door. (laughs) But when they would come, we'd give candy and we would also give gospel tracts. And my intention with handing out candy was one, to to meet my neighbors, have an opportunity to meet my neighbors, but also to give them a gospel track. And I'm really not celebrating Halloween. Whether you do, I'm not making a statement about that or not. When I pass out candy, I know and God knows that I'm focused on sharing the gospel. I'm using Halloween, which is a unique time when people are already thinking about the dead and is the only time when unbelievers are going to come to my house as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. I'm using it as an opportunity to reach out. And I would say identify ways in your own life where you can establish trust and connect with people that you can create opportunities to share the gospel. Have a cookout. Invite your unbelieving neighbors and mix that gathering with believers. So what we've seen so far is that gaining trust from the Jews was one reason that Paul went to a synagogue and retold the story of Israel. But he had another reason for retelling the story of Israel. He wanted to trace the messianic line to Jesus. Paul, who knew Israel's scripture so well, he knew that it ended with them awaiting a Davidic king. And Paul, knowing that, brought the Jewish people in the synagogue to David. He brought him up to the point of David in Israel's narrative because he knew the true identity of David's offspring, the Messiah, the true king of Israel. Look at verse 23. He said, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so he identifies here in verse 23 the Messiah as Jesus, and he grounds Jesus and his ministry with the Old Testament promises of a Davidic king. He not only grounds Jesus coming in Scripture, but he also grounds the coming of John the Baptist in Scripture. Look at verse 24 and 25. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? Am I not he? No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Because we're dealing with so much text, you guys know I like to often go back to the Old Testament and uncover, you know, where these things are originating and trace, the, trace it here. We don't have time to do that today because we're dealing with so much text. But just know 
that Paul here is echoing a teaching in Isaiah about one who's going to come to prepare the way for God's coming salvation, which is going to come through a servant king. So Paul here grounds the ministry of John the Baptist in Isaiah. Next, Paul goes on to talk about the rejection of the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Now imagine if you're a Jew and you're hearing that Jesus is the Messiah. One major obstacle to you is going to be, why don't our our leaders believe in him? Our leaders have rejected him. So why should I believe in him? And so Paul even grounds the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders in Scripture. He's saying that was the plan all along. They knew that was going to happen. He said in verse 27 that the rulers fulfilled the Scriptures by condemning Jesus. So to summarize so far... Paul has grounded Jesus being the Messiah in Scripture. He's grounded John the Baptist's ministry in Scripture. He's grounded the religious leader's rejection of Jesus in Scripture. And now, lastly, he's going to ground the resurrection in Scripture. I remember for an Easter Bible study we had uh, this year, I asked some of you, how would you argue for the resurrection from the Old Testament? And blank stares all over the place. Well, Paul, he shows us some texts. First, look at verse 32. He says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So he's talking about the resurrection in verse 32, but now skip down to verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So he's quoting Psalm 16 here about God's Holy One's body not being left to rot and decay, implying bodily resurrection. So what Paul is doing in this synagogue is he is making a strong biblical case that everything that has happened concerning Jesus was spoken about all along in Scripture. He knows that even if the religious leaders reject Jesus, the Jewish people's commitment to the Old Testament is so strong that they can still be persuaded to believe in Jesus if they can see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And then after telling that, grounding 
the gospel and scripture. He tells them what's going to happen if they believe in Jesus. Verse 38, they'll be forgiven of sin. Verse 39, they're going to be freed from the power of sin, implied by the statement, you'll be freed from what the law couldn't free you from. Romans, the, the law has no power to free from sin. And as one last warning to these Jewish people in the synagogue, Paul tells the Jews in verses 39 and 40 that if they don't believe in Jesus, you guys will just be fulfilling Scripture too. And so one point we can take away from Paul, one thing that he models for us in evangelism is to ground our beliefs in what we say to people in Scripture. Now, I know that's not some life-changing truth. You guys knew this. But for many Christian leaders today, people are actually moving away from using Scripture in evangelism. And they say that it's a stumbling block to unbelievers. They say because many in our culture today don't have a high view of Scripture, they see Scripture as a man-made book of errors, they argue that we shouldn't use Scripture much, if at all, in evangelism. It'll just turn them away to talking about how the Bible's full of mistakes. That sort of argument has simply gone too far in its attempt to be sensitive to the culture. Scripture is the word of God and has power. It goes along with the song we even sang this morning about let the ancient word do its work in our hearts. The word of God has the power to create. The word of God has the power to overcome rebellious hearts. And when we don't use scripture in talking to unbelievers, we go into those situations powerless. Meditate on Scripture, memorize Scripture, repeat it to others, and allow the Holy Spirit to use Scripture to change people. So the first point, we saw that Paul established trust with his hearers. The second point is that he gave them scriptural reasons to believe the gospel. And so we've seen Paul is faithful in sharing the gospel. Does that mean that it's going to lead to everyone's conversion? Look at verse 42 and 43. As they went out, talking about Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So first thing we see is a good result from Paul's preaching. Many of the Jews, they, they spoke, he spoke to, wanted him, begged him to come back the next week. They wanted him to come back the next Sabbath, the next Saturday, to share the gospel again. Which, by the way, if it takes at least two weeks to share the gospel, what does that say about the gospel? yes. Penal substitutionary atonement, yes. Justification, yes. Imputed righteousness is the heart of the gospel, but the gospel is really so much bigger than that. And so the Jews 
wanted to learn more about the gospel. And the text says that many who were devout, strong in their commitment to Judaism, began to follow Paul and Barnabas. So we see that some did believe. Verses 44 and 45 show us a different reaction. When they returned the next Saturday to preach the gospel once again, word must have got out because there was an even greater crowd to listen to them than the, this time than it was the first time. But they didn't get the same reaction that they got the first week. Verse 45 says, When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So Paul faithfully shares the gospel the first week, gets a good response, shares the gospel again the second week, gets a negative response. How does Paul respond? He responds by telling them, and this is my own words of what he's saying, you know what? Because of Isaiah and the other prophets, the gospel was meant to come to you first, the Jews first. You are supposed to believe the gospel. You are the chosen ones. You were supposed to be restored first and then help us take the gospel to the nations. But since you all want to reject the gospel, we're going to go out and fulfill the rest of Isaiah by bringing the gospel, bringing light to the Gentiles. Which is why he quotes Isaiah in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. Text goes on to teach us that they went and shared the gospel with the Gentiles. And look at the Gentiles' reaction, verse 48, 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In verse, verses 50 to 52 tell us that the Jews once again persecuted them and made them leave the area, but the disciples had joy in the Holy Spirit. What I want us to see in this last section is that though Paul was faithful in the way he shared the gospel, there was different results. Some Jews believed some Jews rejected him and the gospel. Some Gentiles believed. Results may vary. And the point for us is, when we faithfully share the gospel, we should expect different results. Not everyone is going to believe our message. Not everyone's going to reject our message. And on the flip side, if someone doesn't believe our message, we shouldn't conclude that we were unfaithful in the way that we shared it. You all know that for the past ten and a half months, I share the gospel at the end of the message. 
And as I've done that, I've actually had visitors and people come tell me that they are now believing the gospel. But I also go door to door in Milford. And I know that when I go down into the town that I am sowing into very, very difficult soil. And what I say is almost always met with rejection. Which doesn't mean they won't think about it and accept it down the road. What matters is that I am being faithful and sharing the gospel and being faithful to what the gospel says. And I know that in and of itself, faithfulness to the gospel doesn't guarantee conversion. In fact, I'd say most of the time it's met with opposition. And that's Paul and Barnabas and the other early Christians that's what they dealt with too. They dealt with opposition, but they kept sharing the gospel. And so I want to encourage you all to keep sowing, keep praying, keep sharing the gospel with your friends and loved ones. They may not accept it immediately or sadly even ever, but God sees what you're doing. He sees that your hand is to the plow and you will be rewarded for being faithful. If you're visiting today and you're not sure if you should believe and commit yourself to Jesus, I'd urge you to seriously consider him today. You, like all of us, have lived a life of rebellion against God and sin, and sadly, you will be punished for it. You will spend an eternity suffering and separated from God. But if you repent and you trust in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins— if you believe he has taken your punishment upon himself and you are trusting in that alone, you will be forgiven. All because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us models to imitate in your word. I pray, Father, that we would all learn from Paul, take away from Paul the way that he evangelized to people, the way that he shared the gospel. I pray that we would look for ways to establish trust. I pray that we would have these people that are so that meditate on scripture so much that it doesn't help but come out of us in our evangelistic attempts. And I pray that we wouldn't lose hope when people reject us.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.